This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below. Hello and welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I am your host, Joe Robinson. Down the other end of a mic is my co-host, James Spender. How are you going, Joseph? You all right? Yeah, I'm good. And on today's episode, it's the Cyclist Magazine first, because our guest is not only a relation of lead singer of Cooler Shaker, but also one half of Rizzle Kicks, it's Mr. Ned Bolton. But before we get into our lovely conversation with Ned about dart, cycling and other interesting stuff, me and James are going to run down some of the stuff that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. Yes, right now. James, ciao. I say that to you because your t-shirt says it to me. It does, yeah. It's a Chanelli-inspired or Chanelli-made t-shirt. So it's got the nice little logo. Do you know the um, Chanelli logo used to be um, a heraldic coat of arms? Chanelli, of course, started in 1948. Then uh, Antonio Colombo came along. Um, which is a great name, isn't it? Having navigated the world. <laughs> Having navigated the world and also a successful detective TV series uh, in 1979. I think there's been a murder. Yeah, and they had a guy called um, Italo Lupi redesign the um, heraldic coat of arms with Chinelli, which didn't go down well with Chinelli fans. They didn't like it, but now... They don't like the new winged C. No. I love the winged C. Yeah, it's like the most hipster logo going is the winged sea in its kind of primary colours. I love it. So yeah, the, what Joe can see, dear listeners, is uh, the winged sea and then the words, letters, I-A-O, which spells ciao. So ciao, Joseph. Ciao, Bella. So yeah, I'm doing all right. I'm wearing a happy shirt. Happy shirt for a happy day, even though, you know, the weather has turned a little bit, hasn't it? Cycling is becoming a little bit frostier. Um, I've got the gloves out. You got the gloves out yet? No, I don't wear gloves. I have um, two things about my hands, actually. One, uh, my palms are very big, bigger than usual, farmer's palms. These palms can hold 12 eggs. Fact. Fact. Or, or 10 pool balls. Depends which one you'd rather me see, see me hold. Um, but also in their largeness, they're constantly hot and sweaty. So even during the middle of winter, you'll rarely see me wearing gloves out on the bike. That's very true. Um, Talk to me about the gloves. What are the gloves that you're liking? The gloves that I'm liking? No, I'm not. Uh, well, I mean, this isn't like a special thing that I've had them for ages. Um, they're Castelli. I'm going to say they're Castelli Estremo gloves. They're basically, you know, they are a very, they're an inbred cousin of a ski glove. They really are. They look very similar. Um, a bit of boss-eyed and kind of fat. But they're really good because they're really warm. That's it, really. They're really good because they're really warm. And they feel nice. feel like I'm putting on 
five little sleeping bags on each hand. Ooh, yeah, how lovely. which is nice. Um, but no, that's not what I've been liking. Uh, I've been liking the new Jira Race 9200 group set. Oh, yeah. Yeah, weren't expecting that, were you? Well, I was, because I knew you've had it. Well, yeah, okay, true. So I've had it on two bikes now. Um, what's the difference, I hear you ask? Well, the main difference is, well, the headline is... They did a spinal tap, didn't they? They did. They've turned it all up to 12 now. Yeah, that's right, 12. Got... Well, they went one better than spinal yeah, tap. it's one better yeah. than 11. I tell you, this, go- this group set goes up to 12, because that's one louder. Um, <laughs> so it's 12 speed, um, it's semi-wireless, so basically um, you, the levers pair to the rear mech. And there's no wires that run from the levers to the rear mech. The mechs are paired to the battery. The brains are now in the rear mech. So the charging ports in the rear mech. Does that mean you don't have that? Um, is, does that mean you don't have that little junction box that you used to have to hide under the stem? The junction box is gone. It's gone from you know the junction box moved house a couple of times in its lifetime. Started off under the stem, then it went inside the frame, and then it also went inside the frame again with a specific type of frame port, and simultaneously it also uh, went inside the end of the handlebar plug. Which was always really quite ugly, I felt, because you had yes. you just couldn't match your handlebar plugs. You had this extra like quarter inch on it on your bars as well. So anyway, that's gone. The interface for that's much nicer. There's all these little tweaks. It's basically just one of those things. It's like when Apple brings out a new phone. Everything about it is just slightly better. Right. But ultimately, the OS um, is the same. So the feeling of shifting is the same. Weirdly, right? Shimano says that the shifting is I don't know something like. 38% faster at the front and 48% faster at the rear, um, which basically is like saying a Formula One car now goes like, I don't know, 20 kilometers an hour faster. It's already well fast. You're never going to notice the difference. But strangely, it's faster because it's wireless. Apparently, speed of stuff goes slower down a wire. So, uh, so that's one of the reasons why the wireless is good. Another reason is that, yeah, it's easier to build with, it's potentially easier to pack away. But ultimately, I would say that the wireless doesn't really do very much for the group set that you'll notice, realistically. Um, And the nice things that you will notice, it just feels nicer in the hand. The levers have been redesigned, the buttons... Are they smaller? No, they're slightly taller. The reach is slightly 4.6 millimetres longer reach. Um, So, yeah, they stick out front by about 5 mil. They're a little bit taller than the old ones, um, and they can't in. I love that word. They can't. So they slightly, they slightly, yeah. they slightly sort of like go into the middle towards the stem, which is a kind of slightly more natural hand position. But what I like most is the actual buttons are way easier to press. They just stick out much more. You could operate these things in Castellia Stremo gloves, just to call back to that. So the buttons are a lot easier. Which was always one of the the big things was was using di2 was using them with with big winter gloves exactly i mean listen to us with our first sort of exactly. problems, <laughs> yeah. because of how because of how unlike campagnolo which has its thumb shifters and unlike shram where the shifters are on paddles like a flappy paddle gearbox the that was one thing that you'd often be thinking you were shifting up or down the block but you could be doing actually the opposite yeah but um but no so yes you're Completely correct. That has been refined over time. and But there is one big standout feature which is markedly improved over the last group set. That's the braking. So basically, they've changed the way that the brake pivots work in the levers so that you effectively get less of what's called free stroke. So the point where you're pulling the lever and nothing's actually happening, which is only millimeters, but you don't. that free stroke gets delivered very quickly. 
so the power comes on much more quickly but then after that it is modulated much better so you don't get this very binary feel that older Shimano disc brake systems have on the road anyway which is this on off they've taken their servo wave which is from um, their mountain bike group sets which makes it much more progressive and much more in keeping with up until this point my favorite braking group set on the market well there's not many but i'm going to say um the rotor do you know what weirdly i've just got a rotor uno group set bike i was going to say yeah rotor what the group set that no one's ever ridden but i've just got a bike with that on so i'll tell you about that next week no um campagnolo uh long since had really good braking their braking systems basically borrowed from the magura which um, I want to say Magura is a Russian company. Anyway, Magura has been around for donkeys and it makes really good brakes for mountain bike. It basically gets Magura to make its brakes. Its brakes have always felt fantastic. But the last point is, despite all of this, when disc brakes get wet, they make an awful racket and it sounds like I've got tickets to the Elephant Orchestra. So that's still really annoying. Someone needs to solve that issue. But braking, wild on Shimano, he smashed it there. Anyone that's listening to this, and hasn't turned off already because it's incredibly dull to talk about pivots in a brake lever, wondering whether or not they should get a, an upgrade from 9100, the outgoing Dura race, to 9200. I'd suggest probably not unless you've got three and a half grand burning a hole in your pocket. But if you're looking at a new bike, then yeah, there's improvements that are worth justifying the 9200 bike over a 9100 bike. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to sort of disparage the 9200 group set the latest one the point is shimano already made an incredible product in the last iteration so it's just really difficult to improve on that so it's not to say you this is not a good group set you don't want to have it's just the differences are that minute but that is pr- big praise for the big s and and unlike apple shimano won't bug their lo- old group set to suddenly not be able to charge or function after six months no, you can't. But also, if someone nicks your bike, you can't brick it. That'd be fun, wouldn't it? What do you mean? Well, you know, you can brick your phone. If someone nicks your phone, you can get Apple to basically brick it, so it just becomes a brick. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, well, now you do. So it becomes um, completely useless. There's ways around it, I'm sure, if you're clever in that. But effectively, it makes it redundant as a device. People can't get on it. So if you could brick your phone, uh, your bike, if it got nicked, you could phone up Shimano, and they go... Bike is now bricked, and then it just stopped shifting forever. Okay, that'd be quite fun. I mean, probably you know they'd probably still just take the group set off and sell your frame in Hungary, but never mind. Interesting. Okay, cool. Yeah, sorry, that was that was quite a long ramble chat, but yeah, Shimano. Big. I mean, that's the biggest news that's happened in the cycling industry for flipping ages is a new Giro race group set. Yeah, everything else, you know, I don't know, everything's been kind of held up. Like not a lot of bike launches this year. You know, Dogmarf. That's a good bike, big launch, but you know. Not a normal year for new bike stuff. It's been tough being a journey. Yeah. Well, good to hear that you're liking that, James. How about yourself? Well, it's much, much smaller. I've been really liking, um, it's a restrap top tube bag. Now, originally, I thought top tube bags looked a bit pony. I won't lie. Didn't think they looked very good. Didn't understand why they sort of exist. I just like put it in your back pocket, mate. But I got one. Uh, put it on the top of the crux that I've been reviewing, and now I really like it. Oh, it's that's very, nice. It's very good for keeping in sandwiches on my phone, which means it's easier for me to get if I want to take a lovely picture. Of you eating your sandwiches? Yes. Um, also, what I've been liking at the moment, a uh, third series of Successions out. Oh, that's yes. That's really good. That's, that's very good. watching Listener. 
It's one of the best TV shows I've ever watched. Uh, so watch that. And that's my other recommendation. Things that I'm not liking at the moment. I have got something I don't like at the moment, James, and I'm going to say it, is I don't get why there are two ways of putting discs onto disc wheels. Oh, what, because of the splines you can put, you can basically put the disc on the disc rotor. So, yeah, you can either do it where it's using the same tool you use for a cassette. Oh, I see. Okay, different you tools. Put, yeah. You just put that on, yeah. you just slot that in and you tighten it up with the little, uh, like the plate, the face plate. Or there's the other way, which is like a five bolt. Oh, I see. Actually, I was going to say there's even more ways than that. So, so that, why? Why? Why can't they all just be compatible? So I have... So you know the crux that I've been reviewing? I wanted to put some road wheels on it because I wanted to see what it rode like with a road wheel tyre set up on it because I thought, oh, this would be actually a really good climbing bike because it's super light. Um, but the discs weren't compatible. I couldn't just take the discs off of the wheels that had been in the crux and put them onto another set of disc wheels I had. You need a converting tool or something or other. And it's just it's just annoying. Like, why? Why does our industry do this? Why can't it all just work to one common method and goal? Why instead does it have to be like, oh no, you actually need this other thing that you need a converting tool for, which you're only ever going to use once. It's going to cost you like forty quid to use. And you know what? If you've got, if you want to take this Campagnolo cassette off of this wheel, and you also own Shimano. There's only one tool for that. It's a specific tool. Why would we make a tool that works for both? It's just so annoying. You just said it at the beginning of that. It's the bike industry. That's what the bike industry is, Joe. Have you not seen bottom bracket standards? Does my head in? It's like it's also it's also like the the free hub on this wheel is for a twelve speed, and then I wanted to put it on another set of wheels which had an eleven speed hub on it. So now it doesn't need it. I have to take the entire hub off. Like the entire free hub. It's like, why can't... Oh, just fit. And then I've got my hands all greasy. And I've got some grease on my floors. On my LVT floors. Oh, dear. Which I didn't see. And I saw it later. So it took. It was harder to then clean up. That sounds like you had an awful time. I can, I do, do you know what, though? I massively sympathise on all of those fronts. Because I was building a couple of bikes and boxing some bikes and sending blah 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 yesterday, and like blow me down if there weren't just a million different esoteric parts and things that I needed to the point where I was just like so I was so close to finishing and then and it was just like oh now you need a T twenty seven torque wrench to put this put a Roto Uno just to talk about that group so uh, um, rear mech on and I I haven't I haven't got one of those to hand. Why? Why is everything else four or five mil or even six mil now? And like Allen keys, and then you need, then you need to go scrapping through this box. And then I'm like, oh, don't worry, I've got one on my um, on my multi tool. I'll take that out, take it off my multi tool. I mean, the thing's only about like a centimeter long stump of metal with a little torx bit on the end, and then the depth of the bolt is obviously twelve mil, so it just doesn't reach. It's the most literally the most annoying thing. Campy used to do it. uh, no, actually, talk, talks bolts discussions are not for today. But anyway, no, no. Then we'll get onto the fact that sometimes they don't use normal sort of Allen keys; they use the starred hex. Ah, oh. no, that's oh. what talks bolt is, mate. 
Oh yeah, same thing. Whatever. I don't know. I've not even got the brain the brain capacity to learn the specific names for this. Why can't it all be standardised? Why can't everything just be a, a four mil Allen key on a bike, and then we'd all be happy? Yeah. Everything started up with four mil Allen key. Anyway, let's let's stop moaning and yeah. ranting because we could be here all day. Uh, let's just get into the episode with Ned Bolting because it's a good one, and we talk about darts, which is nice. So here it is. So, have you been up to much this morning, Ned? I have. I've finished off writing the acknowledgements uh, for a book. Well, I, acknowledgements you have to write. If you write books, you have to write acknowledgements. And I, I think this is my seventh book, excluding the road book and, and stuff. And I always really struggle with the acknowledgements. But I've just, I, I'm, in the spring, I'm publishing a book about football. Um, but because I used to work in football for about 25 years. I don't do anything in football anymore, so I can kind of look at it with a, a, a bit of detachment and a bit of wry amusement and stuff because it's a pretty strange world. So anyway, that's what I did this morning. I, I finished my acknowledgements for my football book. What's, what's the book going to be about, Ned? Because me and James both are ardent football fans. So. Are you? Well, it's about, it's about being a fan of, of a certain variety. I mean, I came to football quite late, fell passionately in love with it, and then kind of got found, my, found myself ending up in an incredibly privileged position, really, to be in the tunnels at Champions League games and kind of interviewing all the top players year after year when I was working on the Champions League for ITV and kind of World Cups and European Championships as well, reporting there. And, you know, off and on, I did that for 20 years. Often, you know, towards the latter end, it kind of ran parallel with my involvement in the Tour de France initially, which was kind of, at first, the limits of what I did in cycling. But yeah, so so the, the book is actually about, to sum it up, which I'm going to have to learn how to do, because I'm going to have to do some publicity for the book. I think it's about falling in love with football and then getting incredibly close to it and becoming quite disenchanted uh, with it once you lift the curtains and see what's going on you know behind the scenes it's a pretty it's a pretty unforgiving environment and I kind of had to reach the conclusion that it wasn't for me or rather probably better I wasn't for it so so the book is called square peg round ball and that kind of that kind of sets up the slight the slight unease about the whole book interesting well without giving away any spoilers um what what, what is it that kind of made you progressively more uneasy about being around professional football well I mean I kind of went into it joyously naively thinking um it, it's that thinking you know completely unforgivably stupidly that football was a game and it, it turns out it isn't you know it's anything but a game it's a it's a livelihood it's a way of generating fantastic wealth it's a pressure cooker it's a business you know multi multi millions depend on jobs livelihoods i mean one of the things that i i kind of i was blown through the fates as i kind of drifted through the football la- broadcasting landscape is i was prized away from where i started out at sky sports to join the ITV Sport Channel. <laughs> Actually, this curiously ha- has a slight bearing on the Tour de France and everything, which is quite interesting. I could come on to that. But um, the ITV Sport Channel lasted 10 months and then we were all made redundant um, because they had decided in their infinite wisdom to sign the rights to not the Premier League, no, no, the Football League. So all the other divisions for a, and this is 20 years ago, almost exactly, for £350 million. No way. <laughs> I mean, that tw- 20 years ago, that's what they paid for the Football League rights. And blow me down, um, it, within a few weeks and months, they'd realised, oh, we're, we're just losing money hand over fist, aren't we? Um, so it was, it was one of the biggest kind of corporate car crashes in, in all of broadcasting history, actually. It's kind of remarkable to be involved in that. 
That's interesting because there's recently, you might have watched it, there was a um, BBC documentary, Fever Pitch, about the rise of the Premier League. Yeah, I haven't seen it actually, but it sounds interesting, yeah. I mean, obviously with the Premier League, completely different beast, but when Rupert Murdoch bought the rights, and everyone called him an idiot for, I think it was 500 million. Now, like, he's going to hemorrhage money. That's the end of Sky. And obviously, ITV probably saw that and was like, we could maybe do the same with... But with Akron and Stanley away to Wickham Wanderers. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly that's exactly it, you know, because there's only a very thin slice of top kind of Premier League action even that generates money. You know, there's a, there's only a very limited number of people who, I don't even know who plays in the Premier League these days. Help me out here. Bournemouth, are they, are they in the Premier League? No, they're not anymore. It'll All right, be... well, that was a bad guess, wasn't it? Southampton. Yeah, Southampton. Southampton. All yeah. right, Southampton versus Norwich, right? You know, that's it may be it may be a Premier League match, but it barely moves the dial in terms of, you know, that's why you'll find uh BT and Sky subscription television is very very reluctant to release its exact viewing figures because, you know, aside from a few marquee events, they're pretty risible. Um and the same applies applies across the board in televised sport, by the way. You know, whether it's international cricket or the Tour de France or the Giro d'Italia, you know, if you put stuff behind a paywall, um, straight away, you are making an executive decision to ring fence and limits, severely ring fence and limits your reach. And that, uh, that is just a fact of broadcasting life that still is still, still bears, um, a lot of clout, you know, it's still important. If tomorrow you had to only have one in your life and it was football, darts or cycling, which is, which is making the cut? Football doesn't. Um, so darts or cycling, and I've, I have to say, it's got to be it's got to be cycling. I, I would very reluctantly have to drop the darts because I love them. I love them to bits. I love them to bits. Save for this fact, throwing a dart and riding a bike are pretty much the only things that we can almost all of us claim to have done at some point in our lives in the sporting context. Both have also got an, an incredible amount of pageantry involved for two sports that you know. If you think about cycling and the the elaborateness of it, the colourful nature of it, and in darts, look at Peter Wright with his multicoloured hair when he comes out, or you know the way that that's a real showman sport. I like the idea of pageantry. You know, I, I tried to explain. I tried actually a couple of years ago to convince the professional darts corporation, the chief executive of the the man who runs the sport internationally, basically a guy called Matt Porter. I tried to convince him that the world champion in darts, who is at the moment Gerwin Price who gets crowned at Ali Pali on New Year's Day every year, um, they should, for the next year, have like a, a, a world champion's walk-on, you know, shirt. Like, you know, to take that idea from cycling. And instead of being the rainbow bands that, I think in the UCI, it represents the continents, doesn't it? But instead of that, it should be the, the constituent colours of the dartboard, to wit, green, red and black. And I think those, those stripes would, be, um, would, be, would sit quite nicely, wouldn't they, on a, on a dart shirt. Is there a way of blending the two, like biathlon, and say so you climb climb one two, and then you've all got to throw a dart at I don't know what's what's the knocky? Do you say eight feet? Is it? Uh, I, I should know this. I've written a book about darts as well. I can never remember. It's around about seven foot. I don't think it's as much as eight foot. But that's the that's that's the ultimate question. If you set Tajik Podakar against Gerdwin Price, they both had to ride to the top of one two, but at the top of one two, they both had to hit a one eighty. Who would win? Listen, uh, you joke, right? But do you remember the, the Revolution series in, in Manchester and, you know, J- James Pope and, and all that sort of thing? I was, de- when they were when they kind of the, towards the fag end of that, when it was slightly running out of steam and they were trying to think of new ways of, I genuinely wrote to James and I'd said, you want to get a darts biathlon on the track? <laughs> and I'd kind of, I'd, 
I'd figured it out that you place two, you place two darts boards back to back in the track center with an oki either side. Yeah? yeah. Actually, back to back would be bad because if you missed, you might actually, that's a really stupid idea. Side by side, side by side for the two teams. <laughs> and you have, you have, it's the darters against the cyclists. Quite simple. You know, so whatever time the darters would lose on a, on a, on a couple of laps of the track, and it's a relay, you know, um, they would gain by the sheer ineptitude of the darts players just fumbling around and missing. I mean, I think you, to be realistic, you wouldn't have to hit a treble 20 or something kind of almost impossible. I think they'd just have to sit, hit maybe a single 20, a big 20, to release the next player. Um, but I think it would be close. I think it would be closer than you might imagine, actually. And ironically, the Dutch would dominate both. They'd dominate the darts and the cycling. So... For Marianne and Voss, Ellen van Dijk, it's a, it's a no-brainer for them to be involved. Did, did, did I ever t- no, did I ever tell you? Of course, I haven't told you. I haven't appeared on your podcast before. But I have, I, I actually, about five years ago, I gave Marianne Voss a dartboard um, because we were working together on television. We were, we were covering the, um, the women's tour that year when she was injured and she was kind of working for ITV as, as a pundit and I was still presenting the race back then. And, uh, we were just driving along somewhere between start and finish. And I started to, talk, I started to talk to Mariana about Michael Van Gerwen, <laughs> <laughs> who for those of you who don't know, is the, is possibly one of the greatest darts players who's ever lived. And he's also, as a human being, he's got some unique physical attributes, um, that, that are quite uh, quite starkly in differentiation from, say, Mariana Voss, for example. Um, and I, I said to Mariana, I said, "Have you ever met Michael Van Gogh? Because he's another Dutch sporting legend, isn't he?" Yeah, that's a legitimate question. And she goes, "Oh, see the guy who looks like a baby." And I went, <laughs> "I went, yeah, he's that guy." And I said, "Have you ever?" Th-? And I said to Mariana, "Have you ever thrown any darts?" And she goes, "No, I haven't." And I said, "You should try. I bet you'd be really good." And then. I thought I'll send her a dartboard after we'd stopped working together. So I went down and bought, <laughs> bought a dartboard. And um, the, I was quite surprised that it was 45 quid for a dartboard and almost the same amount to stick it in the post to the Netherlands. And then I realized that a dartboard is completely useless without buying her some darts. And then I thought, I can't just buy a bog standard dart. So I got custom made Mariana Voss um, flights as well and stuck that in the post to her. And all in all, I think the whole throwaway gesture cost me over 100 quid. Um, and I doubt she has even unwrapped the, the packaging. And I don't know if she's ever thrown a dart. I was going to say, did she ever get back to you? No. But well, I will, <laughs> when I next bump into her, I will ask her if she's ever actually used the dartboard. So, I mean, this is now going to be incredibly tenuous. We're going to introduce a third sport here, snooker, which you've said nothing about. But having just seen uh, the Gods of Snooker documentary, do you, have you come across that? No. Which is on iPlayer. So it's got, um, it charts the kind of rise of uh, snooker, particularly in Britain, at the hands of Colour Television, obviously, and Barry Hearn. Um, and it had, it, what struck me is Barry Hearn basically made superstars out of people like Steve Davis in a way where he kind of cast them a little bit like wrestlers. So he gave them these personalities, even though they're all walking around in almost identical suits around a big green square. And I kind of look at cycling and think, you know, where have, where have those superstars gone? Do you kind of see that? Do you feel, have you been writing to the UCI or to the ASO with suggestions like uh, cycling and track, uh, sorry, darts and uh, track cycling? Or, you know, where, where are we going wrong there? Well, I mean, they did miss a big opportunity, I think, the Revolution Series back then. I mean, joking apart, there is a kind of slight problem with cycling, isn't there, with the, the mirrored shades that they all, that they all routinely wear because... It is nice, isn't it, when you when you see a bike race? Um, who 
who doesn't wear glasses? Tony Martin often didn't wear glasses and Victor Kampenertz doesn't tend to either. And it makes a huge difference, I think, when you can really see into their eyes. Um, and sometimes on climbs, don't they? especially when it's raining, they'll just take them off and hook them on the, you know. Um, and it, it, does, it does make a massive difference. But I think I, I, I would have really agreed with you maybe three or four years ago um, about where are all the characters in cycling. But I'm not sure I can be, I'm not sure I can be quite so on board with that now because I think we are... I think we are genuinely enjoying a golden age of, I mean, the back-to-back world champion, how much more of a character, male world champion, how much more of a character do you need than Philippe, who he can't help himself. He's just so unreconstructed. It's, you know, it's amazing how expressive you can be just turning the pedals, actually, and how much, how much you can reveal about your personality. And genuinely, I think there's a, there's a complete synergy between Philippe's. I mean, I don't know the guy particularly well, but what I imagine his psychological makeup to be and the way he races a bike. I mean, I think they're kind of absolutely married together. It's fascinating. I, I often, sometimes I, I think, is he, does he know he's doing it? And is he playing up to a, a crowd and a, and a character? Because sometimes, and I, and I, but in a good way, in that he knows he's this larger than life, expressive character. And the amount of times he'll attack in a race knowing that he's only going to get 100 metres out the road and then be out the back. But he does it anyway. And I feel like, does he do that because he feels duty-bound to be Julian Alaphilippe at all times? Whether that's whether there's some truth in that or not, I don't know. Um, and I actually kind of don't care either. But on a sort of slightly more technical point, you know, you say he does these kind of like little firework attacks um, and that's a bit of a trademark and they don't often come. I mean, at, but actually that the very fact that we know him for that contributed in no small measure to his victory at the world championships this year. And he, he almost said as much, didn't he afterwards that, um, they did that quite deliberately. They, you know, he, he, he attacked three times in this kind of slightly febrile, um, way, uh, that probably, you know, would have, um, resulted in the, the rest of the peloton kind of like rolling their eyes and going, Oh, well, just let him do that because that's, that's clearly not going to work. And then the fourth time he attacked, set up by Valentin Madouas, stuck, you know, but he'd, he'd already prepared the ground. He was a bluff. You know, he'd made, he'd made it look like he was actually, the legs weren't so good and he wasn't on such a good day. So that all he had left was to fire off these kind of slightly pointless attacks. Whereas actually he was that good and this final attack was going to win the race. You know, it was cute beyond measure. Um, and it's really telling, isn't it, that Thomas Vuckler was part of orchestrating that in the French, you know, um, car being the national coach of France. And he is a guy, I think, much more calculatedly, because with respect to Vaclair, he wasn't half the talent that Alaphilippe is. Um, you know, Vaclair was a guy who knew how to curate, curate a certain image and was quite aware, I think, of when live television w- w- was up and the helicopter was above the race and kind of would enact that, to some extent at least. I didn't want to decry his wonderful career because it was that. He was a talented bike rider, but he was a very sad, he was a sponsor's dream. He was every July the Tour de France would roll around and you knew that the Europe car team jersey would be on television for at least a certain amount of time because Thomas would be up the front with his tongue wagging and out of the saddle and whereas maybe other teams don't have that character to to light up a race or just to to have eyeballs on there. Yeah absolutely but I mean I don't think I think in all that about Vercler you shouldn't underestimate what a great bike rider he was as well I mean I know I've just 
unfavorably compared him to Alaphilippe, but you could un- you could unfavorably compare almost everybody who's ever raced a bike to Julien Alaphilippe. Whereas Vaclar, there was a certain ruthlessness about what he did, you know. His, his two spells in yellow in 2004, you know, that, you look back at those images, it's incredible how young he was, really. You look back at those when he's unzipped on Plateau de Bay and he's kind of rocking around defending the jersey on that heroic day. And then to back it up seven years later and to have a similarly long spell in the yellow jersey in 2011 in that wonderful edition of the tour. But here's a little detail that somehow gets forgotten in all of that. He went into the jersey. I'm pretty sure I'm right on this. I stand to be correct too. I'm pretty sure I'm right. He went into the yellow jersey in 2011 on the day that Hoogerland ended up in the barbed wire and, and Juan Antonio Fletcher nearly got killed. He was in that breakaway with Hoogerland and, and Fletcher. And if you look at that images, those TV images back, if you can bear to, um, I think I'm right in saying in one of the shots, you see Vukler look round, see the accident that he's avoided and that has struck the other two and he just goes. <laughs> and, the, and the breakaway, the breakaway stayed away that day. And I think he landed up in the yellow jersey. I think I'm right in saying that was the day he took the yellow jersey in 2011. It's a fairly cold-blooded thing to do, isn't it? Yeah. So, Nez, you've joined us here. Um, we should put this in context because, uh, as any anyone listening thus far will have realised, you don't only have the voice of cycling currently, you also have an encyclopedic knowledge of it. And I can't think uh, that that doesn't have something to do with the fact you edit the roadbook, which is a kind of... In a loose sense, a sports almanac, but specifically concerning cycling, it's now fourth edition. Is that right? Was it in, in its fifth year? No, it's a fourth edition. Yeah, it's a fourth edition. Yeah. And you know, just to kind of give it some context, and this is this is the the blurb on the site, right? So it's a team of dedicated enthusiasts that's headed up by you. Um, but you deliver this book seven days after the end of the season, and it basically has every single result of all the major races. Um, including things like uh, course profiles, infographics, but also even things like wind speed. But it's also got essays in there from the likes of Tom Pidcock, Lizzie Dagan. Um, it is a complete uh, accompaniment to the racing season and a great way to shut your cyclist uh, friend or family up at Christmas, I'm assuming. Um, so looking back on this year, this is what we really like to talk to you about. What for starters, what sticks out um, as a story that the roadbook kind of brought to you that you hadn't clocked this year that you were surprised by, and you, you kind of think, you know, that's that's such a lovely cycling story. Well, there's a few. There's the guy who um, runs the Flanders Classics group of races, which include obviously the Tour of Flanders, but also the Scale de Prize and oh god, what else do they have? They've got the Brabant Appeal, I think, and what, Ghent Vevelgem, possibly. Yeah. Anyway. Tour of Flanders is obviously the crown jewel in their in their in their program. Um, Thomas van der Spiegel um, runs the Flanders Classics. He the tallest man in cycling, by the way. The tallest man in cycling who used to be a basketball player, didn't he? A professional basketball player, which I didn't realise until he submitted an essay that he wrote for us about you know the, the passion and frustration of trying to run the Tour of Flanders through two years of pandemic, you know, in which it's been denatured by having to um, be raced behind closed doors effectively. And what it, what it means as a Belgian to have to inflict that on the Belgian cycling public, you know, and I, I you know, the more I scratch beneath the surface of what Belgium, what Belgian racing is about and what it means to the Belgian people, the more interesting it becomes, you know, uh, and, and, and this is, this is another layer of kind of fascination, but this time from a, from the perspective of a, a race organizer. Um, another essay that probably, you know, will, will have 
because it's a detail rather than you know a headline, so to speak, this year, but will ex- exists in this year's roadbook, was written by Cecilia Utrup Ludwig about the first half of her season, um, which was uh, full of frustration. You know, the, I think the really one of the really fascinating things about the women's peloton is. Um, Unlike the men's peloton, there are there are far fewer races at world tour level, uh, and those that are raced, whether they are flat races, very mountainous races, cobbled races, or something in between, they are competed by the same group of elite riders week in week out. So it's kind of I think it has a real narrative. You can turn up in front of your telly, you switch it on, and all the hitters are there. You know, Longo Borghini is there, Brenauer is there, um, uh, Dignan is there. You know, all the Dutch stars are there and uh, Kasia Nieviodoma is there. And so too is Cecilia Utrup Ludwig. And she belonged at the beginning of this year and certainly through the spring classics campaign, definitely to that group of riders who were just always finishing sixth or seventh or fifth and not getting over the line. She had not won a world tour race until this year. And her essay is, as you would imagine, because we're all very familiar with the way she speaks in interviews, it's incredibly raw. And she comes away from her classics campaign in a, a state of kind of despair about ever, about how to race. She's almost lost her kind of mojo. She doesn't know what she's doing anymore. And she kind of rebuilds, goes back to scratch and just throws the shackles off, starts to attack Julian Alaphilippe style. And it, and the few first few times it doesn't work. And like on the third occasion, she races with this sense of liberation and kind of joie de vivre. It comes off. And she, beat, she beats all the hitters in a stage in Burgos. And just her description of this, and that's her first World Tour win in her career. And just her description of this absolutely seminal moment in the career of this young rider is um, very moving to read. And it reminds us all of the fact that this is, unlike darts, unlike snooker, unlike football, unlike almost anything else you can imagine, as a sport, this is a sport which celebrates suffering. Suffering is almost its only coinage. I was talking to Adam Blythe about this when we were working together at the Tour of Britain quite recently. And I said, did you ever look, did you ever sit on a bus and look forward to a race? Because I can imagine if you're Lionel Messi playing for Barcelona and you know you're going to put on another show, you're probably really looking, you know, like on the morning of the match, you're probably pacing up and down, can't wait for kickoff because what you do for a living is actually good fun as well as incredibly rewarding. And I asked, uh, did you ever have that Lionel Messi feeling before a race? And he went, he thought about it long and hard. He went, not once, not even, not even for the races that I targeted that were important where I had a chance of winning. And let's not forget he won the ride London, you know, didn't he? Once, not even then, all you're thinking before every race is, oh God, what's what's coming my way? Do you, do you think that's a feel shared by this new generation that we touched upon? The likes of Evanderpoel, Pogacar and Evanderpoel, who have this race with this sense of liberty and sort of childness, where they they almost look like when you watch Lionel Messi play football, for Evanderpoel it sometimes feels like, now I'm going to attack and it's going to be really fun. And I'm going to enjoy myself today. I think you must be right. I mean, wh- where you're not, where you're not right is in your pronunciation of Pogaccia. Pogaccia. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't let it slip twice, Joe. Um, um, I think, yeah, I think there's something in that. I think it must be, it, uh, uh, you know, it must be 
And again, I think riders have spoken about this, the feeling of when you are quite demonstrably stronger than everybody else, the feeling of meeting it out and knowing that however much you're hurting, everyone else is hurting twice as much. Uh, it's a weirdly unpleasant thing to admit to, isn't it? But the the sense of pleasure that you can just turn it on and turn it off at will, whereas everyone else is just hanging on. You, you see it often with, um, I think Van der Poel's the best exponent of it is the way that he just sometimes... It feels like his attacks are almost pointless, but they're just as a, a, a sort of a, a way of demonstrating to the rest of the peloton that I'm, I'm much stronger than you today. What Mathieu van der Poel did on stage two of this year's Tour de France, I have never seen that before and I doubt I'll ever see it again. It was, to my mind, the greatest single day of racing in this calendar year. On the Mur de Bretagne, don't forget they went over it twice he had to make up, what was it, an eight-second deficit in GC to take the jersey? And he calculated, or something bigger than that, wasn't it? No, it was bigger than that. But he had to take both the the bonus seconds on the first time up the Mur de Bretagne and win the stage at the finish line and win with a gap sufficiently big enough over everyone else to take the jersey. So he attacked on the first time up the Mur de Bretagne and David Miller and I commentating for ITV, we both went, well, that's, that's a bit a la Philippe. That ain't going to work. You know, he might, he might get the bonus seconds, but that is not a race winning move. He clipped off the front, got the bonus seconds and sat up. And at first we thought that's because he's cracked. That was such a big effort. But actually he was totally in control of what he did. And when they came around the second time, he did it again. And Nobody could answer him. And that was just, that blew our minds. I've never seen a rider. And that, again, it goes back to his cyclocross background, doesn't it? Because he's able to recover so much better than, you know, after such a big effort. In a similar vein was his victory at Strada Bianchi, Bianchi uh, in March when he, I think it was the penultimate or the, the last section of gravel. And he did that monstrous attack that dropped Van Aert and sort of shed half the group that wasn't Alaphilippe and Bernal. And you thought, he can't back that up again. You don't do a, that style of attack. And then riding into Siena, he manages to drop Alaphilippe on terrain that I don't think Alaphilippe's ever lost on, which is a sort of a double-digit climb. And for me, that was when a, like a, a jaw-hitting-the-floor moment where he sort of went, this is um, fairly special. You're not going to forget that race or that finale in a, in a, sort of a, in a short time. It was it was mind blowing. It was violent, wasn't it? It was just it was almost painful to watch. I mean, he, yeah, he attacked him on the Santa Catarina, the Via Santa Catarina in Siena, which is very steep, as you say. But I mean, to drop Alaphilippe to humble him in the way that he did was amazing. But then you think what the, the other wonderful thing about Mathieu van der Poel is he is fallible. He is human. You know, we saw it at the World Champ. We saw it at Roubaix where he got his sprint all wrong because. He'd never experienced, you know, 208, 70 kilometers of cobbles before and da, 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 da. He got it, um, you know, that they are, these guys don't win all the time. Tour of Flanders, he was out sprinted by Kasper Asgreen. I mean, the only, the only rider who is crushing everybody, every possible opportunities in the men's peloton at the moment is Tadej Pogacar, isn't it? He seems to be in a kind of place where in the GC group, He's untouchable at the moment. But outside of the GC group, there's all sorts of intrigue and complication. And um, it's pretty unpredictable, actually. Because you think you think Van Aert's going to win everything. And actually, he had an amazing Tour de France. He won the Tour of Britain and a bunch of other stuff. But he hasn't quite had the impact, actually, just in terms of, you know, when, when you open the road book and you look at Van Aert's results and you go, is that all he did? Because I thought he dominated 2021. But maybe not, because, you know, he's sharing the spoils with all these other great riders. Just one thing I want to say about the book is um, we took, in the fourth year, for the first year, we've taken a decision this year to include cyclocross in it, 
which is really stretching a point because it's the roadbook, right? We don't publish track results. We're not interested in BMX or mountain biking, which maybe we should be, but that's not what this book is about. But we did have a kind of editorial meeting this time last year and thought, do you know what? I think we're going to have to have a look at cyclocross because there is this cross-pollination between the best cyclocross riders and they use it as preparation for the road now, as they've always done, to be fair, um, as well as a, a, a great thing in its own right. So yeah, we've got, we printed all the, the major um, cyclocross results of last winter and Tom Pidcock has written us an essay about what is cyclocross. Um, so that will stay, I think, from now on that, you know, the cyclocross is part of our offering as well. And I don't think you'll find cyclocross's results kind of packaged up and noted and bound in a beautiful volume anywhere else. Um, so that's that's another one to put in the, the cellar. Do you think you'll end up having gravel in the next year? Oh. <laughs> the sigh, <laughs> I feel like. I think when, when, at the moment it strikes me a couple of things about gravel. One is, I, from what I've seen of it, it doesn't look terribly exciting to watch. Um, it's an endurance event, you know, it's like, mm. um, and secondly, it strikes me that the riders who are competing in gravel tend to be at the end of their road careers. And it seems to be like something they're tacking on for the last couple of years and they're enjoying a different kind of adventure. Um, if that dynamic changes and it suddenly becomes a hotbed of talent that starts winning the big bike races on the road, then maybe we'll have to look at that. But I don't think gravel is there. Interesting. And speaking of hotbed of talent, you touched upon it when you uh, were describing the way that women's cycling is so very different to men's. Um, what were your impressions of Paris-Roubaix this year? And specifically as well, you know, the kind of politics around it. You saw a champion uh, in the women's race scoop 1,535 euros and you saw the champion in the men's race take 30,000. And that's out of a prize of 91,000 euros, I think. And then the women split, split about 7,000 between their top 20 places. So there's a huge disparity, despite the fact they have now tried to align the two events. And even, you know, they didn't even... Uh, race down the most famous stretch, um, the Arenberg Forest. So what were your kind of impressions of the race, but also of the kind of media circus and, um, you know, amongst the commentary uh, sort of fraternity, what were their impressions too? Well, I didn't understand why we only saw the last 50 kilometres of the race. I don't, I don't really get that because, you know, the way television works is, is fairly straightforward. If you, it's very expensive, right? Television, very, very expensive. Hundreds of thousands just to get a bike race on live. You know, it, that's what it costs. Fixed wing aircraft, helicopters, motors, all the technical trucks. You know, it's a big gig. But, but if you invest in it, you pay for someone's services for a day. So you pay for a moto pilot and a cameraman and all, all the other bits. Of they were all there all day, but they only actually gave us those images for the last 50K, which I don't really get. Now, sometimes when you have a men's race and a women's race on the same day and the sh the crews are sh you're sharing the crews between the two races there's kind of reasons why you know the women's race unfortunately has been compromised historically and you only get a little very so stradibianchi is a great example of that like yes. 20 kilometers you get of the women's stradibianchi yeah I, I think you watch one section of gravel in the women's race live yeah and that's it and then that's and that's because that's because straight away then the helicopters everyone else goes back to pick up the men's race they're sharing the same but you, you can't you can't say that about Paris-Roubaix. There was, there was a different day solely dedicated to the women's race. So there may be, this may be my naivety, there may be a good reason why we only saw the last 50k, but it doesn't, it's not obvious to me why that was the case. I think we should have seen the whole race. The prize money thing is obviously inequitous and obviously entirely wrong. And the UCI need to bang heads together about this and legislate that this is no longer a viable 
thing. You can't do it. You can't have these kind of disparities. The, the, the prize money must be shared equally. Um, but uh, what I would say is the uh, the issue here to me is I don't really know what prize money is doing in in the men, in the in the world the men's world tour. I don't know what function it fulfills. It's not. It doesn't go into the pockets really of the riders. You know, Peter Sagan once at the Vuelta had to abandon the race uh, after he was struck by a camera bike, if you remember that, a few years ago. And he was in the green jersey at the time and would surely have won the green jersey, the points competition of the Vuelta that year. And I wondered idly, um, I wonder how much money he's just lost by having been forced off the race. And I looked in the back of the thing and it's 3,000 euros, okay, which, he would have sh- which he would have shared eight, eight ways. So I thought, I was kind of like, what is it? What's that 3,000 euros even about? Um, these guys, the guys who are winning world tour races are all on hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds a year. That's their salary. They don't need this extra prize money. To my mind, they don't need it. Um, so that all needs looking at. It's a bit like when England footballers go to play for England, they get a match fee, don't they? If they don't like, if they don't like it, if they don't like playing for nothing, then don't play for England. But why are they being paid a match fee? You know, their, their, their clubs can pick that bill up. So that's, that's what I think about. I think there's an inflation in the men's prize fund that just simply doesn't need to be there. You know, not like, so if you took away the, the, the what, what does a winner of the Tour de France get these days? I think it's, it's about 700. Yeah, I want to say something like that. But obviously it's not 700. If you take that away, does Pogaccia not turn up? Of course he turns up. Well, he's, he's probably got a bonus clause in his contract that means he'll win double that anyway. Or he'll learn himself a sponsorship real with some company somewhere and now i'm stretching a point here because i know that further down the food chain the prize money does mean something to the the, the men's peloton but at the top end it really kind of strikes me as a bit of an irrelevance and a bit of a red herring and it, it exacerbates the inequalities um so and, and the women you know very few of whom are paid a good salary very few of whom are paid a, 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 a good salary they could do with the prize money so yeah i mean we're heading in the right direction but it is kind of painfully slow the learning curves isn't it it's kind of you know it's pulling teeth in this sport just to but i mean i think that the, the will is there and i do think in in my kind of experience my 20-year experience of road racing i think that Dignan coming into the velodrome, winning Paris-Roubaix and then holding a cobblestone above her head was the single most historic moment in the progression towards equality between the men's and the women's peloton in 20 years. I thought it had, I thought it had real, real historic heft. Uh, I thought it really meant something actually in all sorts of ways. And I thought that the, the debate around it was fascinating, you know, right through to the debate around sexism in the imagery of the showers and, and that, that's a very interesting debate. There's some aspects of that that I'd never even considered, you know. But yeah, I mean, hopefully it comes as a precursor to what next year should be a fundamental shift, you know, in the, in terms of the the women's, um, the Tour de France des Femmes. So that kind of uh, leads into a question I wanted to ask you. You've seen Back to the Future, I'm, I'm assuming, or you? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you've got your, your Biff Tannen and you've got the Sports Almanac and you're in the 1950s and you can suddenly start betting on the racing outcomes for any given season um, and win. So now you're filthy rich. What do you spend that money on to improve cycling? How would I improve cycling? I would, I would, I, I would get hold of, I would bung, I would bribe with a large amount of money. I would pay for either the Giro d'Italia or the Vuelta race organization to have the courage 
to run off a grand tour of three weeks length without a single time trial or summit finish. And I would just have a succession of interesting hilly stages that fell somewhere between the likes of Mark Cavendish and Wat Van Aert's capabilities. <laughs> and, and I would want, by that, I would want to produce a grand tour winner who was someone a bit like Peter Sagan. I think that I think that because you look back and you know Sean Kelly won the won the Vuelta. Sean Kelly couldn't win a Grand Tour in this in this um, day and age, and I think it would be a really interesting experiment. It might backfire massively, but hey, there have been boring editions of Grand Tours, you know. So it's I I would love someone to take that risk. I, ironically, um, we're in the UK. One of the most boring in recent memory was 2012, which was the one that got Brits into cycling. Yeah, in in their thousands, which was ultimately, if we look back at it, it was a race decided by two quite long time trials um, and Bradley Wiggins riding at a single pace to the top of a mountain every other, a few, every few days, a couple of weeks in a row. Yeah. Don't forget it had a wonderful moment of high, high treason and treachery to in, uh, enliven it. Uh, but, of course. Yeah. And then a fantastic Twitter spat between riders' wives. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, that was very enjoyable. So, so we do want a, I'm sort of thinking of the stages. Do you remember stage seven from this year's Tour de France to Le Crusoe, which was the 250k stage, which was one of the best stages in modern time? Which is or, or the stage into Epernay in Champagne, where Julien Alaphilippe took the yellow jersey yes. a couple of years ago in 2019. That was brilliant. Um, the Mur de Bretagne. You can do it like three days back to back if you want. Reconfigure it. Like just stay in Brittany for an entire ten days stretch you know um basically it's a bit like the tour of britain <laughs> but stre- stretched out over three weeks i think it would be um it would just be really interesting to see a, a grand tour because it's really strange isn't it the, the high mountains and the summit finishes we we look forward to them with a passion and then they arrive and we go oh well that was the outcome <laughs> and and there, and there was a lot of there was a lot of that wasn't there i thought and this year's tour de france which was wasn't a great spectacle i don't think i know it was a blistering open weekend and it was incredible but there was a lot of kind of all the intrigue was really in the kind of who's going to win from the breakaway today <laughs> you know like well the gc race was just going in one almost inevitable direction so that yeah that that, that, that that's what i'd do because they're not going to voluntarily do it and one of the reasons why the race organizers would shy away from ever doing that is mountains have become this kind of mythologized marketing thing haven't they you know they are no longer just lumps of rock with various interesting geographical stories to tell uh, geological stories they are now sent center most particularly with the tour de france in their marketing of the race and so you know the, the the marketing department of aso would never countenance not having the alps and the pyrenees involved at some point but it doesn't necessarily make them interesting no or la planche de belfi which see must be paying millions and millions to aso because it seems to feature every single year since it first first appeared in i think it was 2012 when it first chris Froome took the stage didn't he and wiggins went into yellow i think on that occasion yeah and they they had a sort of man hug at just behind the podium that was um completely phony um <laughs> <laughs> um but uh, yeah, I mean, the La, Pla- La Planche des Belfis is great, isn't it? I love the way it's kind of, it's rapidly become kind of iconic. So, I mean, that's borderline. That's almost too much of a climb. I'm not sure I could allow that. <laughs> um, we've got some more, less serious questions, but they are kind of serious in the same, in some respect. Uh, the first one that I wanted to ask, I've met him, he's a lovely man, but is Primus Roglic artificial intelligence? Is he secretly a robot? 
I, I, I would have said yes. I would have <laughs> said that up until this year's Vuelta, where I thought um, he just kind of like, I, he was so comfortable in the race, really, wasn't he, in terms of his confidence in his own abilities to win a third Vuelta. And that I thought there's some of the, that kind of, self self defensive mask and let's face it he's a young man speaking in a in a in a second language you know i don't don't know how many languages he speaks but it's not his it's not his mother tongue but some of that some of that um kind of uh robotic for want of, of a better word kind of image started to drop a little bit and i thought we saw much more of a natural human being there but i feel kind of i feel for him you know cuz I, I just wonder whether he, it's ever going to happen for him at the Tour de France. I don't know whether I really want to see a Primoz Roglic victory at the Tour de France, but on a personal level, I'd like for him to to have done it once because he's been incredibly unlucky, hasn't he? One way or another. He is a, a very affable man and very, very polite. But yeah, it's more the way he races. It's it's the way he just, apart from La Planche de Belfi at the 2020 Tour, it seems like he never misses a beat. And and the way that Egan Bernal was throwing everything he had at him in that welter, and just nothing nothing could stick, and and it's happened in three welters in a row now. <laughs> yeah, it happened the previous year, didn't it, with Carapaz who attacked him on the on the penultimate stage, and you almost thought, oh god, is it going to happen again to to Roglic? But um, yeah, he's a, he's a he's a curious one, isn't he? I mean, there's something there's something a little bit un- I'll be honest, there's something a little bit unappealing about his racing style sometimes. It's not, you know, it hasn't got the the sheer bravado of his younger compatriot, Pogaccio, who just seems to have it all at the moment. You know, there is a Roglic method, isn't there? And it, and it often it often involves this insane acceleration at 500 metres to go that is unanswerable. And he does tend to, he does tend to win his Grand Tours by increments, you know. Um, time bonuses play a big part in his method. But that's, in a way, that's modern GC racing. You know, the days of people... I was going to say winning by minute, huge minute margins, although we had a bit of that this year. Um, but by and large, you know, people on any given mountain stage are not going to take a minute. You know, even a, even a really big successful attack might yield you 20, 25 seconds and that would be a good day at the office. Um, so it's changed a lot since I first got into the sport in that sense. Yeah. Um, my second question is, um, have we ever seen a better satirical comedy than Team Movistar? <laughs> yeah i mean you do wonder what they're doing don't you because they are yeah i mean i didn't i have to say i haven't seen the second series i did see the first series and i'm still haunted by you know at night by the image of pablo lastras the ds who's you know even when he was a when he was a racer he was kind of frightening to look at but as a ds just terrifying and the fact that they just lacerated mark Soler on <laughs> you know in public uh, rather than it was just a refreshing change, wasn't it? From all this kind of very calculus. <laughs> Mark, Mark Soler comes across in the second series. Does he? Ex in it. Oh, he's he's brilliant in it, but mainly because he comes across as this sort of petulant teenager that you end up siding with most of the time, and you end up feeling sorry for because he always seemed to be the sort of the the one to blame. <laughs> I, you know, he's moving on, obviously, you know, he's going to UAE team Emirates, isn't he? And uh, it'd be interesting to see what he does there. But I, I commentated towards the end of this calendar season on three consecutive races, two for world feed commentary, which is this invisible thing that you don't hear in the UK and one for ITV. But I commentated on the Deutschland tour, then the tour of Britain, and then the Giro di Sicilia, right? And Mark Soler and I 
were the only people who were ever present on all three races. <laughs> and I, it just made me laugh that Movistar had picked him for all those three races, none of which suited him, you know, um, because he's moving on. So he was just on the naughty step with Movistar um, throughout this autumn. You know, go to Germany, go to Britain, go to Sicily. <laughs> he's lucky because normally that would have also included him having to go to the Tour of Guangxi. The, yeah, well, he's race, probably there. Racing isn't he? smog was it? for eight days. Yeah, yeah. Has that been cancelled this year? I can't. I quite believe remember. it has. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It never. That was always the the the. That was the entire race field were riders who were transferring at the end of the season to different teams. Yeah, exactly. The graveyard, and also for the for the for the roadbook, you know, making the roadbook available as quickly as we do. That's just such a pain in the ass that race because we're we literally normally we're holding on for the last day of racing to get the last set of results and then literally press return and hit print because the rest of the 900 pages have been built up over an entire year and they're ready to go. Um, this year, it's the Ronde van Drenthe, the last Women's World Tour race, which we're, we're hanging on for because everything else is, is good to go. We're just waiting for those last results. And so, uh, thinking of Tour of Guangxi, what's, where's the weirdest place that you end up as a commentator? What's the weirdest race and why? Well, very close to the Tour of Guangxi. In 2015, I commentated on my own at the Tour of Taihu Lake, uh, which is a big lake east of Shanghai in China in this industrial region where I think the first start is a nine-day stage race. Every single stage is pan flat on a dual carriageway. I think of the nine stages, seven were won by Jakub Moretzko, the Italian sprinter. Jakub Moretzko has a special place in my heart because... He's one of the most successful sprinters of the last 10 years, but has only ever won races in Southeast Asia. I know. And I remember thinking, because he was only, he's, quite, he's still quite young. He was only 20 or 19 even when, I, when he was winning all these races. And I remember thinking, wow, when he gets to Europe and I see him race in Europe, he's going to be my secret little hipster guy because he's going to smash it and I'll be the only one who knows anything about him. Turns out he's, he's a bit rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> He's not good enough to win any races in Europe. It's uh, it's fascinating how relative cycling is, isn't it? Someone can look like a world beater in any given race because they're not racing against anyone who's any good, you know. So, but that was an amazing place. I mean, China. Uh, my only visit to China. China is, I thought, in my naivety, that because it has embraced capitalism in the way that it has done, and it's become this kind of you know vast industrial beast and kind of tech you know, thing. I thought that alongside all these economic reforms had come a degree of kind of political loosening of the chains from the Communist Party state. I was completely wrong. So that my Chinese commentator colleague who was working on the race had like literally state minders next to him who were listening to every single word that he would say. And after a few days when I'd gained his trust a little bit, he spoke wonderful English. You know, he would occasionally I'd coax him into telling me about what life was like in China but in order for him to talk honestly to me we had to he had to look around and we had to walk into the middle of a park somewhere where he could be sure and he'd always leave his phone somewhere else um so he could be sure that they weren't listening to what he had to say it's a frightening state it really is but hugely impressive in all sorts of other ways but it was a bizarre race and who's your uh, who's your rider of the season last season um well, there is a jury um, which has luminaries such as Mark Cavanish and Christian Prudhomme and, 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 and who else is on it? Ryder Hejdal, Georgia Bronzini, various different people. I've forgotten a whole load of people who are on the jury and they've decided um, in the six different categories. Um, I, I, I actually would find it impossible to to call, but my personal choice, and I don't sit on the jury, 
I think once again would have to be uh, Alaphilippe. Uh, and that's not to say that he's the best rider because that's a fairly fatuous thing to try and determine, isn't it? Because every rider is different and has different targets. But I think he had two targets this year. Um, one was to win the first stage of the tour and take another yellow jersey. And the other was to re- regain the, the world championship. And he did them both. He just turned up. And he, he it was almost his entire season became about that acceleration in which he dropped everyone on stage one on that uphill finish. That lasted 20 seconds. And then it became about the last however however many kilometers of the world championship after, sorry, he'd been set up by Valentin Madwas and had gone on that big attack. And it was just those two moments in a long, long campaign that he executed with such absolute precision and brilliance and strength that I think um, he's still my favorite rider out there. And he still looks like Begbie from Trainspotting. And and I, I'm still going to claim that I got there long before Brian Holm or Richard Moore or all the other people who claim they spotted that first. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen him in a pub then with a pool cue having a fight? Yeah, I'd steer clear, wouldn't you? <laughs> but I know it's such a cliche question. You know, when are we going to see another French um, Tour de France winner? But is there something about the French kind of being, you know, to use a French expression, hoisted by their own petard because the public in France expect explosive, exciting racing, which isn't kind unless you are insanely strong isn't conducive to winning a three-week um stage race because you need to be more constructive in your approach or is that an unfair criticism no i think there's a i think it's well it's an unfair it's a fair criticism to the extent that um i think endemically cofidis uh vital concept groupama fdj first and foremost and ag to la mondial edu to citoyen it's been so long now that they have been justifying their existence and relating to their sponsors simply by competing for podium places at best, but more realistically stage, win- stage wins and jerseys, the, the lesser jerseys. It's been so long that that's been in their DNA that I think their entire tactical kind of template and approach is predicated on something that isn't conducive to winning Grand Tours. So it's almost like you need to sweep the board of all these wonderful folk who have kept French cycling alive. We were talking about, you know, um, um, Bernardo, who with that relationship with Vaclav kept the Europe car team alive. And of course, Marc Madio, et cetera, and uh, Ladenu. All these, uh, Ladenu, I should say, all these folk um, have been wonderful servants to the cause. But I wonder whether it's the right cause. And if they do want to produce a French Grand Tour champion, you almost feel like you have to throw away every template that's gone before. And I hate to say it, because this is going to be really uncomfortable listening for a lot of people of a certain kind of disposition in cycling. You might have to team Sky it a little bit. You know, there might have to be someone who just goes, now this is the French World Tour team and we're new on the block and we're going to hire him, 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 him. And then that's how we get Thibaut Pinot over the line. You know, it's no longer going to be Thibaut Pinot, obviously, but the next Thibaut Pinot, you know whoever that may be. Well, famously, uh, Brailsford, I, remember, I don't know if it was a throwaway comment, but in about 2016, 2017, said that he wanted to have the next French Tour de France winner race at, or do it at Team Sky, as it was back then. And he did think that that would be the only way that it would actually be possible. Because, as you said, of the, just the I don't know if it's the, the method or it's just the the sort of monkey-on-the-shoulder kind of aspect of the French teams, that it's just never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bunch of stuff, isn't it? 
you know, not least, you need the rider. Someone has to, you know, someone has to come along who's got the physical attributes and then you can start, only then, really, can you start assessing the mental side of it and, and the tactical side of it and the psychological side of it and, and, the, and then build a team around that rider. Now, Pino was the guy, right? Make no mistake about it. Thibaut Pino was the guy and Sky tried to buy him in 2014. Uh, he didn't want to go. Uh, he did, you know, to his, uh, but that says a lot about Pino, doesn't it? And it says a lot about the debate we've just been having about where French cycling is. Um, you know, and I, I respect that enormously from Pino. He's just his own man and he went and did his own thing and he didn't, wouldn't have been happy in the regimented ranks of Team Sky. So best that never happened. Um, but you know, I think a lot of that, apart from, see, apart from trying to get Pino, which I'm 99% sure happened in 2014, that w- there was a lot of PR about all those, kind of gestures from Brailsford at that time. You know, don't forget they produced their French... I mean, what were they thinking? They produced a French national champions jersey, didn't they, in Team Sky Colours? Even though they never had the French national champion. And and Rafa, who were their kit maker at the time, was selling them. It's just like... And that was designed to kind of appeal to the French. Like, what are you doing? It was a real misstep. One of their many, many missteps in terms of public relations, I think. Yeah. Now, just to ask you something uh, about your kind of, you're still your cycling life, but your life away from um, race commentary. You also do the Tour de Ned, which is um, a one-man stage show, which sounds really quite alarmingly scary. Uh, So that's my first question. Is it? Um, Secondly, you know, you're up on stage, it's live. What's the worst heckle you've got from a crowd member and how do you deal with it? Well, it's probably in Yorkshire. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um no it's 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 so it's been covided slightly not slightly yeah. i had to cancel my tour that i got set up obviously for 2020 and even for t- the autumn in 2021 i thought that's not gonna be a good idea so we're coming back i'm gonna write an entirely new show and i'm touring next autumn so this time next year i'll be uh out and about doing i th- hopefully 30 35 dates around the country and it is bizarre as it sounds it's kind of a almost verging on stand-up comedy kind of thing quite theatrical and it's about the tour de france it's about cycling and it is truly terrifying um to sit in the you know some of these theaters are big you know in the west end we got 900 people the richmond theaters are thousands you know the sulford lowry 600 700 that's a lot of people to keep happy (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's very isolating because it's just me and i sit there and i'm locked into the green room and I can hear on the intercom as the auditorium starts to fill up, you know, uh, and I'm just down there on my own for three quarters of an hour pacing around. And until you get up on stage and the first joke lands, and even then it might not land exactly as you want it to. So you suddenly think, ah, oh, okay, I've got an hour and a half of trying to work this crowd. But sometimes you get up there on a good Friday night, Saturday night, particularly in Leeds and Yorkshire, where I love, I come back year after year and, and the first kind of gag for want of a better word, lands. And you just think, brilliant, we're all going to have a lot of fun here tonight. But yeah, I'm I'm very fortunate, actually, that the people who come, come because they want to enjoy it and they don't come because they want to derail it. And so the heckles are great because they add to that feeling of, oh, this is totally unscripted. What's happening here in this theatre tonight has never happened before. This is just all a bit on the edge. And without the heckles, you don't, you can't really generate that. So that I, I, I invite them really, to be honest. <laughs> and how, do, how can you explain the context of uh, Henri de Grange, the uh, you know, originator, um, founder of the Tour de France, coming out of a washing machine? Jeez, I can't even remember how that came about. But he did. I had the, I had the, because it was all about kind of like the rhythm of a Grand Tour and getting to that first rest day 
after after eight days of racing and ninth day you know it's almost biblical on the ninth day he did his laundry um and you get to you get to a laundrette wherever you are and you're in this befuddled state where you don't actually know where you are you can't remember what happened yesterday you've no idea what's gonna happen tomorrow and in this kind of empty shock of a state i i fantasized about how weird it would be if you loaded up if you open the door to the 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 washing machine and a booming voice came out of the washing machine and it was the voice of Henri Desgranges talking to you about how all your shortcomings and how crap modern cycling is and how nobody knows they're born these days. So me and him had a little standoff, me and and the ghost of Henri Desgranges in a laundrette, live on stage in Yorkshire. <laughs> it was good fun, actually. And I got, I tell you what I got, I got Al Murray, the pub landlord, who I know, I got him to do the voice of Henri Desgranges. <laughs> Yeah, I often thought that Al Mario would be able to do a pretty good first time round hour record. He's got the limbs for it. Yeah, I'll put it to him. I'll put it to him. <laughs> he has, yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, incredible stuff. But I mean, what what would uh, Omri de Grange's um, criticisms of modern racing be? And how do you rebut them? Well, uh, God, where would he begin? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> almost everything. So like, let's take, let's take, well, it's not modern racing, is it? It's 10 years ago, but let's take the Schlecks saying that you can't attack in the wet on the, on a descent. Well, I mean, that would have been the last time they'd ever been invited to the Tour de France. Uh, no doubt about that. Um, well, you know, he was, has, I've been, I've been reading a lot of what he wrote actually for another project that I'm working on recently. And I'm deeply fascinated by him. I also think I've, this is a little bit of a side side thing actually, but I think I have discovered and have in my possession by hook or by nook, and this is a much longer story attached to this that I'll save for another day, but I think I've got some of the only moving images, film of Henri de Grange that exist in the world in my in my possession. And I'm kind of like, and it, but it's only a fleeting shot and he's standing three quarters with his back to the camera in the footage that I've got hold of. But um, it's kind of captivating because he is like, this towering figure and let's just just worth reminding you that you know the tour stages used to be 460 kilometers long and they'd start at one o'clock in the morning and wouldn't finish until it got dark the next day Uh, we famously sent james to was it the first stage of the first ever tour de france you recreated did you no, it was, a, it was the second second stage because the first stage we decided was oh, so Leon to Marseille was stage two. Leon to Marseille, yeah. yeah. So because we we figured the Paris traffic even at two in the morning would just be awful. So and also it had the first climb of any description, even though it wasn't anywhere near the likes of today. But it was the Col de Republique, which has got the uh, Paul de Vivi. Is that right? The uh, Vlossio, the journalist who famously kind of was the uh, advocate for uh, derailleur bikes. So yeah, road road that's four hundred kilometers, and you look at the the history books of the people doing it, and you obviously had um, the Grange. We had uh, Hippolyte Coutrier, uh, who was a man mountain, and basically would have won this thing, but got incredibly sick. And some of the stories, it wasn't just you know the you know the incredible cheating and also living off fifteen francs a day as a privateer, but just getting literally jacked at the side of the road by your. Um, your com- competitors mates in the village as you came through and I kind of think that's what I do with some money is, is put on an identical Tour de France to one of the early ones because man oh man as you said can you imagine starting in the morning you you probably start you know before the sun comes up um, as a commentator because you have to but <laughs> as a cyclist rolling out of town in the dark I know it is but you'd have to, to but in order to do that obviously you'd have to dig up all the tarmac 
over 460 kilometers, you know, and, and lay some gravel. But it would, one of the interesting things about the, the early years of the tour is quite often they would fit, the stage would finish in a velodrome, you know, used to in Paris when the race got back to Paris. Brest, which it went to very often in Brittany, always finished in the velodrome there and in one or two other spots as well. And that was quite handy for the race organizers because there, if a bunch came to the finish line together, of 20 riders, which it sometimes did, you might be able to figure out with the naked eye who won and who finished second and maybe even who finished third, but you'd have no idea who finished 14th. Yeah. Because you couldn't record the images and look back. So what they used to do was they used to make them race for 460 kilometers, get to the velodrome, and then the commissaires would go, right, everyone stop, 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 stop. How many of you are there? 24. 24 of you. All right, we're going to have a 24 lap elimination race. And that's what they used to do at the end of like an entire Tour de France stage. You'd have to have a devil. <laughs> it's actually incredible. But that was the only way they determined the, um, the actual order on the day. Yeah, it's a different, it's a different world, but a absolutely entrancing one. Yeah. Fair play to you, fair play to you for doing all that though. Did you do it in a day? Yeah, I tried to kind of, um, be as, uh, as sympathetic to the cause as possible. So I got a bike and made it weigh about 16 kilos, single speed, you know, woolens tubular around my neck. Um, and it was great. Rolling out of, uh, of Leon at two in the morning was amazing and cycling through these little villages as the sun's coming up and the bakers have got the croissants on the go and you can literally smell the fields and fresh bread. What time, what time did you get to Marseille? Well, this is the thing. Eventually got to Marseille after 20 hours on the road, um, 15 hours spent cycling. And you'd be alarmed at the amount of Nescafe one man can drink with cold UHT milk at the side of the road. It was, And by the time I got to, I don't know if you've ever been to Marseille, but it's very windy as well. Like the streets are pretty, um, you know, it's not like New York with a grid. So I'm absolutely knackered. I finished in a car park, which I think was the original finishing place there was just a fridge an old fridge that i sat on uh, and a dead cat that i looked at for a while and then the guys i was with picked me up drove me to the hotel um whereupon i looked so green they sent me up to the uh, to my room because of kind of fatigue and also winding around these marseille marseille streets and then i was uh, sick everywhere and passed out and that was my over i'd been desperately thinking we're going to go out on the lash and have a beer and celebrate this and no and you and you think and then i would have had to get up and do that all again tomorrow Back in 1903. Well, they normally had a rest day, didn't they? They 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 put a day of rest in between the the stages, but nonetheless, yeah, you're right. Sounds great. Sounds like you had a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was an experience I shan't forget. Um, so yeah, um, but yeah, just to, just before we wrap this up, just wanted to ask you something because we often do, you know, we do a bit of research here. We like to try and uh, find out a little bit before we come on air. Um, your Wikipedia page is very interesting, notably because it relates you to Roy Bolting who, um, with his brother, as your, as your grandfather, right? So film director. Uh, yeah, yeah. my grandfather was John Bolting and he had a twin brother called Roy. Yeah. Ah, okay. So that's already wrong. So we need to make some amendments. But <laughs> by my calculations, it also means by, because the, they were married four times and five times or something. Is that right? Between them, between them, they married 11 times. <laughs> wow. I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and it now positions you with a cousin of some removal who is uh, Jordan Stevens from Rizzle Kicks. That's right, yeah. And Jordan, yeah. I know Jordan. And Chris, Crispin Mills from Cooler Shaker yeah. is your kind of step uncle, <laughs> yes. I've worked out. I, well, that, is that I, true? I'll take your word for that. I know that Jordan is a cousin. Uh, Crispian would be a step uncle. I think he would be. I think that's right, yeah. Hayley Mills. Hayley Mills, Hayley Mills was his mum? 
I think the actress, I think so, the daughter of John Mills and all that sort of thing. So yeah, um, I didn't know John and Roy Bolton, um, as is self-evident by the fact that I don't. So I share, I share a name with them, but yeah, that, that's uh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, well, well done, Wikipedia. Yeah, well, yeah, well done, Wiki. Well, well, well done, well done, the Bolton lineage. That's a showbiz family <laughs> if ever there was. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, can I? Can I? Otherwise, I'll get my um my wrist slapped. Can I just say that you need to head to theroadbook.co.uk to pre-order before the 6th of November. And the reason you need to do that, uh, talking about the roadbook, is because you'll receive a signed first edition uh, for the same price, I think, as a normal book. So if you want to get the book, get get it before the 6th of November from theroadbook.co.uk. And that has fulfilled my obligations to the powers that be who have set up this interview. And there we have Ned Bolting. James on the podcast talking to us from his South East London home. Very good guest talking about the roadbook, which will uh, be available for pre-order, as you mentioned, at the roadbook.co.uk. Get yours now. Christmas is around the corner, uh, as is Thanksgiving. Other Is Christmas around the corner? Or is Christmas? I think they're drafting in, they're parachuting in some new politicians to try and save Christmas. Outlook is bleak. Dominic Raab didn't do it last time. Well, if you if you if other other items are going to be unavailable due to uh, haulage issues, the roadbook it seems will not be. So that's a guaranteed Christmas present for all your cycling loved ones. Hand delivered by Ned Bolting. I've got a really um, completely uh, esoteric story about Ned Bolting, um, which I didn't want to raise with him, but I raised with you. You may remember this, so. Uh, we go back in back in the old days when we had an office and a place to go and cycle during Monday to Friday. Yeah, I remember it well. Used to go cycling around the park. Came back through Regent's Park. Yep. Yeah. Came back through Central London. Saw a commentator, a cycling commentator, no less, crossing the crossing the road in front of us. This is the entire cyclist magazine staff, which we like to think of ourselves as, you know, at the sharper end of uh, cycling knowledge. And we all went as one, pointed at the cycling commentator. I'm not being banded into that because I didn't say it. I did not do it. it I didn't. And we went, look, it's Ned Bolting. And who was it? It's Gary, Gary and Mack. Mack. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, Gary and Mack. But, you know, well done, Ned, because he, well, he took over from Phil Liggett, didn't he? He's now the kind of um, de facto, he can't be the voice of cycling after Phil Liggett because he's taken his voice of cycling somewhere else. But big shoes to fill when he came along in 2016 tour. He's the he's the voice we hear on terrestrial television. Yeah, doesn't have quite such a ring to it. Um, if he was a darts player, <laughs> they'd have to have a, a shorter name in the middle, more like Phil the Power Taylor. Talking to darts, though, James, completely unrelated story. Um, as you know, and the listeners may know, I grew up in the town of Dartford, famous for its big bridge and tunnel. Um. One of the pubs in our local town was owned by the late Andy the Viking Fordham, the former BDO world champion, unfortunately passed away last year. He used to own a pub called The Rose, and it had some of the best pool tables and darts boards I'd ever played on. As you can imagine, because he was obviously a professional pub sports man, he looked after these tables and boards with great care, but was very, very nice to go play pool in when I was 18, 19. Did you ever play him? I didn't play him. You'd often, he'd be around, he'd be knocking around, you'd see him, but you'd never played him. 
Never played him, unfortunately. And I used to see another another part, uh, another darts player who's now passed away. I used to see Eric Bristow a lot on the train because he lived in a, a town next to us. So I used to see Eric Bristow a lot. Do you think is, is there some? It seems like there's some kind of link between being a darts player and passing away. Could it be the life? Could it be the lifestyle? Because <laughs> I reckon could be. Yeah. Crafty Cockney because he weren't that old. No, old. And he I do was think that you but... could probably get a decent. Um, Get a decent game out of a few cyclists at darts. Decent darts game out of them. But I don't, I'm not really sure if you'd get particularly good racing on bikes out of darts players. I might be wrong. Well, as he mentioned, the current world champion of darts, Gerwin Price, was a former professional rugby player. I mean, he's a unit, isn't he? He is a big unit. He's a bit of a pantomime villain as well. He gets booed often when he plays. He plays up to the crowd as well. Called the crowd rubbish. Do you want to do a little um, little quiz? Test, test your darts nickname knowledge. Darts, I'll tell you what, that's all the similarity that Ned didn't say, that both cycling and darts have brilliant nicknames in a way that, it's weird that football doesn't really have nicknames, does it? It's like it's like what we used to talk about when we've, we've had this conversation about wrestling, when we, we had Rob House on the podcast about the, the similarities there. So uh, so here you go, I mean, we'll start start with an easy one, uh, well hopefully an easy one, Raymond Raymond Van Barneveld. Oh, Raymond Van Barneveld, wasn't it Barney? It's just Barney, yeah. It's just Barney. Uh, how about Kevin Painter? Was he just like the painter or something like that? Or yeah, similar. The artist, <laughs> Colin Monk. <laughs> is he something like the Monk or like Friar Tuck or something? <laughs> he's he's the he's the mad he's the mad Monk. And then you've got I'll just read out a few that are great. You got Wayne the Wanderer Jones. You got Steve Hine the Muffin Man. <laughs> Don't ask me why. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos Rodriguez, the Spanish assassin. Tony Eccles, the Viper. Uh, Kirk Shepard, the martial artist. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, my favourite, Phil the Power Taylor, only because Phil Taylor puts on the bespoke uh, handmade bicycle show. This year was in Harrogate, just happened weekend gone. Uh, most of the time it's been in Bristol. And they're no relation, but it's always amused me because, again, you couldn't see two more different individuals. Um, Phil Taylor of Bespoke, lithe and and gentle. And Phil the Power Taylor, big and bold, ladies and gentlemen. The Arguably, and I'll die on this hill, Phil the Power Taylor is probably the greatest sportsman of the last 30 years. Greatest British sportsman of the last 30, 40 years. No man... Is as dom- no man or woman has been as dominant in their discipline as that man was. Sixteen world titles. You know he has a winning record against everyone he ever faced. He's basically beaten everyone in darts. So he, every single person he competed at in darts, he's beaten more than he's lost to them. Wow! Not one player had a better a winning record against him. Sixteen world titles. I think he did sixteen in eighteen years. The man was phenomenal. Did not get the respect put on his name that he deserves. Exactly. That's what they used to say about Eddie Merckx. Really? Yeah. That Eddie Merckx was so dominant but didn't get the, the worldwide Adelaide, a- accolades that he deserved. Yeah. <laughs> Did they? <laughs> if, oh, there you go. Phil the Power Taylor, Eddie Merckx, both got a race to the top of Mont Von 2 and then got to do a 501 finish. Who's winning? Who's winning? Well, that's a really good question. That is a really good question. Von two, just over, just under two thousand meters. Uh, what is it? I don't know. Twenty. He's gonna. I don't think Merckx is gonna throw five oh one because I tell you He'll what. He'll get stuck on that double. 
it'll get stuck on the double. We all do. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, you can sight, you can ride a bike eventually up something, I reckon. But if you haven't ever thrown a five hundred one, you could be there all bloody day. Exactly. And Eddie Merck's only ever cycled, really. And Phil the Power Taylor's getting there, and he's doing that in minimum, like maximum, fifteen darts. Easy, easy money. What's your favourite type of commentary? Because mine is darts, just because of the darts calls. Right. Because I could do that. I could do a... And the best thing, it's a bit like, do you remember the Vidi printer in um, in football? And they'd read out the intonation of whoever's reading. You could predict the results of it. So it would be Accrington Stanley won, and that's going to be a draw, because it's the one, or it's going to be a loss. Sorry, that's going to be a win or a loss. And a draw is always Accrington Stanley won, Wickham Wanderers won. That's always going to be towards the intonation. So with darts, they always trick you with the intonation because they'll throw like a they'll, they'll throw their three darts. So it'll be like one hundred and forty. You'd be like, oh, you nearly had me, James. You need twelve to finish. A hundred and like, I mean, yeah, there needs to be more calls. I feel like a hundred and eighty in cycling, but um, you know, yeah, there's uh, there's a lot to be buried, buried, buried borrowed from the, uh, the from the sport. And I don't know what the guy's name is who does the, you know, James, you need 12 to finish. Um, but he could be there roadside and be like, Tajek, you've got two <laughs> kilometres to finish when they're on an attack. He's there. Instead of the the, the clipboard, the white, uh, the chalkboard, Yeah, it's just him on the back going, Vanderpool, you've got four to finish. And <laughs> I think that could add some layers. At this point. <laughs> I, think I think on this note we better we better round this up but it is halloween yes. and you do love a pun joe so yes uh you you've you've come up with some some corkers some halloween corkers invite anyone that can be asked and has listened this far to um you know just write it on a postcard and send your answers to joe cyclist names with halloween puns so joseph from the top Yes, so here's some cycling Halloween puns. James, I want you to rate them out of 10. Okay. Just off the top of your head. Um, I'm going to say the the pun and then the actual rider's name, just just to to sort of help you out. So my first one was uh, Leaf Ghost, and that was Leaf Host. What's the next next one? (laughs) Out of 10. Joe, you've scored three. (laughs) Um... Frankenstein Vanderberg. Give you five for that. Um, so Hugo Hugo Ghoul instead of Hugo Hool. Joe, you scored three. Okay, this sounds good. Nairo Pumpkintana. <laughs> Come on, that was good. Give you five for that. All Hallows Ivanapol. Six. Uh, Trixie or Treat Warwick. Don't even know what or who that is. Trixie Warwick. <laughs> Seven. Why not? Okay. Uh, Candy Apple and Van Dyke. Bit American, but four. I mean, this isn't a rider, but Jack O'Lantern Rouge. I like that. I like that. It's a nine. I like Jack O'Lantern Rouge. Greenmanau Iraviti. You are stretching this proposition with that one. That's a two and a half, mate. Um, and these are two that you put down, but I really like them. Chris Froomstick. That's excellent. That's excellent. Thank you. That's a seven. And uh, Phantom Peacock. <laughs> <laughs> Which, when you say it quickly, sounds like something else. Oh, that's a Phantom Peacock. <laughs> that is. 
Um, on that note, Lindsay, thanks for again for producing the episode. Uh, listeners, if you liked this episode, particularly the Halloween bit, the bit about darts that have no relation to cycling, make sure you share, leave a review, like it, and no, send James some money in the post. Uh, all of the above. I'll accept all denominations from all in, in international nations. So exactly. Um, but for now, James, I'll wish you a, a lovely Halloween, and I'll see you again in the next episode. Totally put. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Sportful, home of the Fiandra Collection. That's right. The Fiandra is a no-nonsense range that was developed on the cobbled bergs of Flanders, where the variable weather can be as challenging as the road you're riding on. Using valuable input from Sportful's pro riders, the likes of Peter Sagan and Paolo Bettany included, the Fiandra Collection mixes weatherproof technology with a performance fit for tough clothing that you can actually race in. With everything from warmers to jackets, bib tights to gilets, the Fiandra range will have you covered from head to toe, leaving you with no excuse not to ride. Prices starting from £45, the Fiandra range is available at all Sportful stockists. For more information on the Sportful Fiandra range, click the link in the episode description below.